Hello, wonderful people. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 65, and it's part number six of our series that we are doing called Setting the Bible Free. Uh, You might be wondering, what are we setting it free from? What does that even mean? Is it locked up? Is it chained? What is going on? Uh, Head back to the first episode of the series, and uh, it kind of gives the foundation Uh, the vision behind it, where we're going, what it's about, the guests that are coming on. It's going to be a 10-part series, uh, and we have lots of good things left to talk about. So today, uh, we're having on the show my one of my professors from seminary, one of my Old Testament professors. His name is Dr. Christopher Dost. He wrote a book called Jesus's Bible, and he's going to come on and talk to us today about some Old Testament stuff. And uh, it's, it is a really good episode. Uh, I learned a lot of things from this book. It's a very short book. It's a very easy book to read. And you should go to Amazon and get it. Uh, one of the things that we talk about, and I'm not going to give too much away here, but one of the things we talk about is what do you do with the parts of the Bible that we have been taught, like this is history, this is the way that it happened, but recent discoveries in archaeology show us that these things most likely did not happen. Like, what do we do with that? What does that mean about the Bible? And what are we supposed to do with it? And really interesting stuff that he shares with us. So I'm excited to share this episode with you. Uh, I'm actually going to go back and listen to it again uh, this week for the second time because uh, actually, it would be the third time because I, I listened to him once, then I listened to the episode myself, and uh, so I'm going to go listen to the episode again and get all this stuff a third time, but really, really good stuff. Uh, before we jump in, uh, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show. Um, we have 22 patrons right now. Uh, thank you so much, all of you, for your love, for your support for your encouragement. Uh, It means the world to me. And I can't thank you enough uh, for believing in this thing and what we're building here. So thank you. Uh, Patreon is a place where you can go to support the show financially. And there's different tiers of giving. So everywhere from $3 a month, which is what, like a cup of coffee, all the way up to $30 a month. And every tier gets its own uh, reward. So for instance, the $7 tier and up gets a bonus podcast episode every other uh, month. And so November 1st, we're dropping a new uh, bonus episode for patrons. So if you want that, uh, sign up and get it when it comes out. There's a few other ones uh, from the past in there as well that you would get access to. Uh, But really cool stuff. So again, anywhere from $3 a month to $30 a month, and every tier gets its own reward. Uh, Special music today is from my friend uh, Before Jane. He's a young guy, college student, doing amazing things in the world, very gifted, very talented, and he's really trying to use his talent uh, to make people's lives better. And uh, that is what I love about him. So all the links will be in the uh, show notes. That being said, um, again, this is episode number 65. It's part number six of our series, uh, Setting the Bible Free. And this is my conversation with my Old Testament professor in seminary, Dr. Christopher Dost. Enjoy. No role other than those chosen or those earned. We are really talking about humanism. Hey everybody, welcome back to the What If Project podcast. Uh, Today we are in for a real treat uh, because we are getting to sit down with one of my uh, Old Testament professors from Alliance Theological Seminary to talk about his latest book, Jesus's Bible, A Concise History of the Hebrew Scriptures. So Dr. Christopher Dost, welcome to the podcast. It's awesome to have you here. Thanks so much for having me, Glenn. I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, for sure. So uh, Chris, I first met you back when I audited an online class that you were teaching. Do you remember that? Yeah, a few years back now. Yeah, so our listeners know that uh, I'm a nerd, but this story might kind of up my nerd level just a little bit, but I had been out of seminary for like, I think it was maybe six years at the time and I was itching to get back. And so I had contacted the school to see if I could audit this class for free since I was an alumni. And they were like, 
uh, like I guess, like no one has ever done that before with an online class. And so you were teaching uh, an Old Testament class and it sounded interesting to me. So I jumped in and uh, did all the reading, I think, and all the assignments except for one. Then there was that final paper that you had assigned, which was a disaster for me because I waited to the last night and uh, I had to work the nine hour shift. I was like, I got all my books, and everything. I did all my reading. I just got to throw this thing together. And that was just a disaster. So it didn't work out the way I planned, but I had fun with it anyway. So, <laughs> well, that's excellent. So, yeah. So here we are all these years later, uh, recording a podcast together, but I'm honored that you would take the time to sit down with me. So again, uh, thank you for, for that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But before we jump in, I was wondering if you could take a few moments to maybe share with our audience a little bit about yourself. Uh, who are you? What are the, maybe the big highlights of your story? What do you do? All the things we need to know about Dr. Chris Dost. Yeah, so um, let's see. I started studying theology when I was doing my undergrad degree in jazz-based performance. Mm. Um, I was, uh, interestingly, planning to go to Manhattan School of Music uh, in New York City. Uh, that was kind of my dream at the time after I finished my bachelor's degree. But uh, a pastor friend of mine handed me a Greek grammar one day and basically said, get to it. And uh, so I spent the next two years uh, just using my free time to teach myself some New Testament Greek and uh, kind of got bit by the bug and ended up at Alliance Theological Seminary, not for a career change, but just to take a few classes. Mm. And so I ended up studying Greek for a few years uh, to an advanced level. Uh, but then when I realized that the Greek of the New Testament was heavily influenced by the Semitic, lang Semitic languages such as Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, but also the Semitic thought world. Hmm. Um, I ended up taking some courses in Hebrew and then I got bit by the Hebrew bug. <laughs> and uh, interestingly, I ended up uh, just across the street from Manhattan School of Music at Jewish Theological Seminary. Um, and while I was there, I did an MA and MPhil and a PhD in um, essentially Hebrew Bible. The first degree was focused on Hebrew Bible and Semitic languages, and mm. the other two were focused on the Hebrew Bible and its interpretation. And uh, so you get a little bit of both in my recent book on uh, Jesus's Bible. Wow, so it sounds like our nerd level is about the same. <laughs> yeah, it, pretty much, pretty much. Birds <laughs> of a feather, you know? Yeah, right, for sure. <laughs> and uh, so what are, you, what are you doing now? Well, these days I'm spending a lot of time studying Arabic, actually. Okay. Um, while I did my first master's degree at Alliance Theological Seminary, I'd taken a few courses in Arabic uh, because it's related to Hebrew and mm. um, it's very useful in helping us to understand uh, the Hebrew of the Old Testament, classical Hebrew, mm. uh, we call it. But um, my research interests as of late uh, are more in the interpretive traditions around the Hebrew Bible. So uh, over the last few years, uh, I was working on a project with some colleagues from the United States and abroad, uh, translating the ancient Aramaic Old Testament into English. Hmm. And uh, Aramaic is a sister language to Hebrew and Arabic, but uh, sometimes you need to know a little bit of Arabic in order to appreciate what's going on in Aramaic. Um, in addition to that, I also study, um, we call it Masora, but essentially what that means is um, the field of, of uh, uh, Hebrew Bible in which we focus on the scribes who wrote down um, the, the manuscripts in the Middle Ages, the ones that our translations are typically based on today. Okay, yeah. And... So because they lived in uh, the Islamic period, uh, some of these treatises were written in Arabic, even though they were written by Jews. And so in order to understand the Judaism of the Middle Ages, and especially um, that, uh, that niche within Judaism that was responsible for producing some of our uh, most reliable Old Testament manuscripts, um, it helps to know a bit of Arabic there too. So uh, that's what I do in my free time these days. Wow. That's, uh, again, birds of a feather. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about your book a little bit. One of the questions I like to ask authors uh, before we kind of jump into the content is if you had to summarize your book or like pitch your book to somebody in a minute, 
Uh, what is your book about and why should our listeners hit pause and go to Amazon right now and pick it up? Yeah, well, in a word, um, I, I, I would guess I say, uh, I would say that it answers the question, where did the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament come from? Hmm. Um, I think, uh, at least in the circles that I run in, religiously speaking, um, most people don't understand where the Old Testament came from, when it was written, who wrote yeah. it, and how we got it into our English Bibles today to begin with. And so, um, you know, the, uh, the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible, I use those terms interchangeably. Okay. Um, I give a history of that in mm. about 120 pages. Uh, the reason why I kept it so short is because there are already a lot of great books out there written by my colleagues uh, that help explain this in detail. The problem is those books tend to be written by scholars for scholars. Mm. And there's a lot of technical jargon, uh, a lot of presuppositions that the general reader doesn't bring to a, uh, you know, the first investigation here. And yeah. so I've tried my best to write this uh, in a way that's as down to earth as possible um, so that people can appreciate, you know, where the Old Testament came from right from the beginning, mm. um, you know, uh, more than a thousand years before Jesus's time, all the way till about the 11th century AD or CE, uh, when the uh, manuscript that we call the Leningrad Codex mm. was written. And that's the manuscript of the Old Testament on which English versions and really uh, most versions of the Old Testament uh, in modern Bibles today are based. Yeah, I feel like the book was is very accessible to even like the most basic or average reader. Because when I got it, I didn't I didn't look on Amazon at like the page number. I just assumed it was going to be long. <laughs> yeah. So when I got it, I'm like, is this the right book? Is this a study guide? What is this? And I opened it up. I'm like, oh, it's like this is the book. And when I started reading it, it's very easy to understand and give a very concise and quick history. So I really appreciated that. So for our listeners, uh, if you're thinking that you might not be able to make your way through it, uh, you easily can. So uh, really good job with that. Oh, so, thank you. Yeah. So first question, uh, in the book, you talk a lot about uh, the Masoretic text and uh, the Septuagint. So my question would be, what are those two things and why are they important? And I, I assume that in our dialogue, they're going to come up once in a while. So I figured we could just kind of get it out of the way. Um, as to what those things are and uh, why they're why they're key for our understanding. Yeah, sure. So the Masoretic text is is the Hebrew text of the Old Testament mm -hmm. that most people are referring to when they talk about quote unquote the original Hebrew. Mm. Okay, and uh, so there are you can find images of um, Masoretic manuscripts. Uh, but essentially, the Masoretic text is not really one manuscript. It's a manuscript family. Hmm. And the best examples of this, the best manuscripts from the Masoretic text family um, come from the 10th and 11th century CE or AD. So in other words, they're about a thousand years old. Okay. And you will hear me refer to these as the Aleppo Codex and the Cairo Codex. Uh, and uh, the Leningrad Codex. Hmm. Uh, the Cairo Codex is another uh, very reliable manuscript too, but it's um, the Aleppo Codex, uh, which was housed in Aleppo for quite some time and is now in Jerusalem. Uh, and the Leningrad Codex, which is now in Leningrad, um, are the best complete manuscripts of the Hebrew scriptures from the Masoretic text tradition. Hmm. Now, as I mentioned, these manuscripts were uh, written down in the 10th to and 11th centuries uh, CE, so about a thousand years ago. Um, they're based on a tradition that is much older, mm. uh, but the scribes at this time not only copied the letters of the Hebrew text, uh, the consonants that Isaiah and Amos and Jeremiah and these other biblical authors would have written, but they added vowel markings and accent markings and other notations to ensure that the biblical text that they had received was read and passed on, transmitted correctly. Hmm. The only problem is the Masoretic text family is only one uh, manuscript family of the Hebrew Bible. So in Jesus's time, um, there were 
people who read and copied what we call the proto-Masoretic text. And all that means is it's, uh, you know, the Masoretic text 1.0, okay, mm -hmm. the, the early version of it. Um, so that textual tradition that we use today for translation has its origins in Jesus's time and before, but the manuscripts that we use come much later, and they've had um, some additions added to them. Mm. Now, in Jesus's time, though, I mentioned there were other manuscript traditions, and we see in the Septuagint, the, the Greek Old Testament, um, that was, you know, the Old Testament was translated into Greek, um, starting in the third century BC, the third century BC. And uh, um, so when the Old Testament books were translated into Greek, we can tell from the Greek that they didn't always use the same types of manuscripts that we now use when we talk about the original Hebrew. Hmm. And so they used a different text tradition at times. And um, we know this for certain now because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. There are manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls that differ significantly from the Masoretic text. And many of them look a lot more like the Septuagint. Hmm. And um, so, and, and there are other textual traditions, but it's, it's the Masoretic text tradition and then the Septuagint that are the two best known traditions um, uh, you know, to those who are, you know, novice uh, students of the history of the Bible. Hmm. And so I guess the, one of the key things, and correct me if I'm wrong, the key things about these two uh, traditions would be kind of to realize that the Bible that we have today wasn't just simply copied from one document all throughout history, but actually is a collection of these many different these many different texts that were copied and put together and in order to make what we have today. Is that correct? Oh, that's right. There's no doubt about it. Okay. Um, and we have material evidence, um, you know, to verify that, hmm. uh, you know, from the Dead Sea Scrolls and from other texts. Um, the, you know, one of the most interesting things that I've learned along the way as I've studied, uh, you know, this subject matter is that today when people think about the the writing of the bible you know when jeremiah presumably wrote the book of jeremiah or isaiah mm. you know the book of isaiah one of the things we often do unwittingly is that we take our conception of 21st century uh, american book culture and we superimpose that or we 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 assume that in the biblical world that books were made the same way and that is absolutely not the case. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if anybody, anybody buys my book from Amazon, uh, they will see my name on the cover. They'll see a title. They'll see a copyright date. And so you can take it to the bank that that is my work. And mm -hmm. anything that anybody else has contributed to my work is acknowledged in the preface or in a footnote or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, in the ancient world, that is not how books were made. Um, you know, one of the things that I point out in Jesus's Bible is that books were almost always the product of a community, not an individual. Hmm. And that is hard for people to fathom, because what that means is that when we come to any book of, of the Old Testament, our operating assumption should be that there are multiple authors, hmm. not one author. Hmm. And so we assume today oftentimes that because in our English Bibles, the book of Isaiah, well, it says Isaiah at the top, therefore he must be the author. That is an unwarranted assumption because ancient readers, when they would come to a written text or were listening to a text, they would assume that that was the product of a community. Hmm. And more than that, it was not just the product of a community that existed at one time. This is the writing and editing and um, uh, supplementation of texts often took place over hundreds of years. Hmm. And we see examples of this from Egypt and Mesopotamia. And, um, uh, and, and now we have very strong evidence that that was also the case in ancient Israel. Hmm. Uh, one of the examples that I give in uh, my own book is from the book of Psalms. Now, tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition tells us 
that the book of Psalms should be attributed to David. The only problem is the book of Psalms in anybody's English Bible acknowledges that there was more than one author, more than David, who Hmm. contributed to this. And furthermore, some of the historical references in the Psalms uh, are to times after David's lifetime, references to the Babylonian exile, which took place roughly, you know, 400 years after David's lifetime. So he couldn't possibly have written that material. Um, So just the book of Psalms alone demonstrates that in Israel, it was not unknown for texts to be produced by communities rather than single authors and over the course of hundreds of years rather than over the course of a couple of years. Hmm. I think that's such a more, such a, I think much more beautiful way of thinking about the Bible because as opposed to it coming from the hand of one person, it's literally many people over the course of hundreds of years who are all in a different place in their journey of understanding God. And I mm. would imagine all of that makes its way into the text in some way, shape, or form. Oh, that's absolutely right. You know, you mm. see it in the book of Amos, for instance. Um, the book of Amos was written in the 8th century BC, at least the initial version of it. Yeah. And it was written, it tells us, for a very specific purpose. And that was to essentially uh, rebuke the northern kingdom of Israel. Hmm. The only problem is the northern kingdom of Israel was, for all intents and purposes, wiped off the face of the map within a generation of Amos's time. And so that raises the question, why would anyone bother copying the book of Amos after the northern kingdom of Israel had been destroyed? Hmm. And the reason was they believed that God still had something to say. And as they copied it, they added references to their own locale in Jerusalem and to their own time period that shows that the the copyists of the book of Amos uh, made some efforts when they were copying the text to add um, almost like Bible study notes or or study Bible notes, I mean Mm. to say, um, so that the book of Amos could be read not only for its original purpose, but also to speak to the people who were reading it generations later. Hmm. Almost like a, almost like a sermon kind of thing. It's, it's absolutely the same thing. And in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I tell my students, we do the same thing. It's just that when we do that, we don't change the text of the Bible. Hmm. We just read the Bible and then supplement it with our comments. Sure. In ancient Israel, they didn't have study Bibles. Um, They didn't have biblical commentaries uh, in the libraries available for people. And so contrary to popular belief, the copyists of scripture would sometimes make notes in the Bible or additional comments, and the texts would grow over time. Hmm. And this is another way in which book culture uh, of ancient Israel is different from book culture today, Um, that texts do grow over time. And that's, again, something that um, scholars who, who study manuscripts and their history uh, have lots of material evidence to verify this point. Hmm, that's awesome. That's, that is a, a very, adds a lot of perspective. So thank you for that. Uh, I want to read a quote from your book, and then I want to ask you to maybe take it apart for us a little bit. Um, you say, for the historian, stories about slaying 185,000 Assyrians by an angel is not supported by material evidence and therefore are not considered historical. Likewise, the stories of Abraham from Genesis cannot be verified or falsified by archaeology because semi-nomadic tribal chiefs from the second millennium BC were not in the habit of leaving behind the types of material evidence needed by archaeologists to verify or falsify the historicity of stories later written about them. So when I read that quote, I thought to myself, this, this is the sort of thing that makes people nervous because yes. a lot of Christians in the West, especially such as myself, uh, we're raised to believe that the Bible is this historical document. Uh, everything is to be taken literally. Uh, but here, you really point out that historians can't look at the story of like Abraham or stories of even various wars uh, and say without a doubt that these stories either did or didn't happen exactly the way that the text describes. So the question is like, why is this important? And I'm also wondering, what does the like inability, I guess you could say, of historians to uh, verify some of the Bible stories in the way that they were written, tell us about the Bible and the best way for us to use it in 2019 
skirting on the edge of 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so the first thing about this is that history in the way we think of it today is really a, a very new way of looking at the past. Hmm. You know, something that has developed really only over the last few hundred years. And when we come to the text of the Bible and read texts that appear to be history to us, we have to first ask ourselves, not what is the text saying, but as one of my teachers once put it, how does the text mean? How does the text mean? And I realize that sounds strange in the way I'm phrasing it, but it's done intentionally. Um, we often are too quick to come to the Bible and we assume we know how to interpret it. And so we begin with the question, what does this text mean? What does God have to say to me today? That sort of thing. Mm. But I argue that before anyone can ask what a text means, what an individual text means, you have to ask, how does that text mean? That is to say, how does one derive meaning from the text? Mm. Okay. And what are the assumptions that we have to bring to the text? Uh, what are the lenses that we have to use? And so the first thing is when we're looking at a quote unquote historical text, we have to remember that at the time these documents were written, um, the writers of the Bible and the writers of uh, non-biblical uh, history writers um, were ultimately not committed to the accurate transmission of facts. Mm. They were not ultimately committed to the accurate transmission of facts. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't present things uh, factually as sure. they happened on the ground in real space and time. Um, but they had a liberty because of the uh, history writing culture, let's call it, at that time, to play with the facts in order to make their theological or ideological claim. Okay, so it was never, history writing in, in that time was never about the history. It was about the message that the writers were trying to communicate. Hmm. And if you had to mess with the facts to do it, everybody understood that that was a legitimate way of presenting a story at that time. Hmm. Now, that's a, very different from what we understand today, because when we pick up a history book, uh, and in fact, when people read my book, they want to come to the text assuming that everything is factual. And that's why I have so many footnotes in there and bibliography. But in the ancient world, that was just not how they operated. And so we need to remember, as someone once pointed out to me, that the biblical text may be written for us, but it was not written to us. Mm. And there is a big distinction there, that it was written for us, but not written to us. Uh, for those who believe in the inspiration of Scripture, as I do, um, I, I have to recognize that God didn't write the Bible in English or Spanish or <laughs> Arabic. He, you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and a little bit of Aramaic. Why? Because the intended original audience understood those languages. Hmm. And so in the same way that we have to recognize that Scripture was written in languages that were understood by the original audience— we also need to understand that scripture was written in a way that the original audience would have understand. In other words, the writers of scripture used established and accepted genres from that time. And their view, uh, their way of writing about the past is not the way that we typically write about the past today. Mm. And that means before we read a historical text in the Bible, we have to examine our assumptions and remember that they are not committed principally to the transmission of facts, but they're trans, uh, committed to the transmission of a message, a theological truth, let's say. Hmm. And that's a big difference. Hmm. So where this really becomes an issue, though, is when it, for the Christian anyway, is when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, because uh, in 1 Corinthians 15.3, the Apostle Paul, uh, writing to the Corinthian church, says, I delivered unto you as of first importance. In other words, he's telling them what is of, of prime importance for the Christian faith. And he says it's this, that Jesus died, was buried, and that he rose again. Hmm. 
And I, taking my uh, cue from 1 Corinthians 15, believe that the center of the Christian faith is the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so the problem comes in when, you know, when I make a claim that history writers were not committed to the facts, someone could reasonably ask me, and people often do, what about the resurrection of Jesus? Mm. Now, I personally believe that there is lots of, lots of evidence um, to uh, uh, corroborate the claim that Jesus actually did rise from the dead Mm. and that that miracle uh, that's reported in scripture is also a historical fact. Hmm. And so that is, you know, the firm foundation on which the Christian faith is built. But at the same time, I can accept the resurrection of Jesus as fact because I have evidence for it. And in the next breath, look at the book of Jonah and say, mm, it's unlikely that this story is uh, historical. Hmm. And so I can read them through different lenses Hmm. as long as I can support that with evidence. And I believe I can. Hmm. Now, would this be why there, why we have four gospel um, interpretations as well? Like, because each one of these uh, writers was kind of coming at the life of Christ in a specific way to speak to a specific audience. And therefore, like you said, they might have maybe played with the facts, so to speak, in order to make, your own point? Yeah, it's, um, you know, some people uh, will look at the the fact that we have four Gospels and say that when you put the four Gospels together, um, you can create a completely reliable picture of, you know, Jesus's ministry, at least Mm -hmm. those issues that are discussed. I'm a little hesitant um, to follow them there because I believe that each one of the Gospel writers as a first century historian, not a 21st century historian, um, was writing in the same way that the writers of the Hebrew Bible did, that they could play with facts. Mm. That's why, you know, we have events that are out of order and nobody's apologizing for it. Yeah. Right. Uh, You know, that's why we have discrepancies. Um, It's not because the writers of, of the Gospels or other books of Scripture didn't know what they were talking about. It's that they were far more interested in communicating a message. Hmm. And when you can, um, let's say, uh, fudge with the details a little bit, the, the, some of the less significant details, in order to drive a point home, that was an acceptable way of doing things hmm. And uh, at that time. And we as 21st century readers of the Bible need to understand what was and was not acceptable at that time, what yeah. was and was not practiced at that time. And we need to get on board with that. Hmm. We need to let that influence the way we read scripture. And um, I realize that, you know, perhaps some of those who are listening to this right now uh, may find that a little bit difficult to fathom. And I understand it because I had to work through this stuff myself. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, my faith is ultimately built on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, which I feel there is lots of evidence for. And I can tolerate the fact that there are these discrepancies in other parts of the Bible. And for me, it doesn't shake my faith in any way. Hmm. All right. So I got a big question for you. Ready? All right. All right. Here we go. So I'm going to read a passage of scripture uh, from the book of Isaiah. That's super popular around Christmas time. And this this episode will probably drop, I think, maybe mid-October, so we'll be heading towards Christmas, and this verse will be coming out a lot. Uh, then I'm going to read a short paragraph from your book, and then I need you to help us uh, kind of break some things down in a way that me and uh, my listeners can, can digest. So uh, the verse is from Isaiah seven fourteen. It very simply says this, uh, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Uh, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, I've always been taught that Isaiah was kind of having, again, first of all, Isaiah was the guy who wrote the whole book of Isaiah, which I think you've kind of shown us is probably not the case. But uh, I was always taught that Isaiah uh, was having this foresight, you know, to see the the birth of uh, Jesus, the Messiah, uh, because in his gospel, Matthew actually takes this verse and uh, quotes it to kind of shine a spotlight onto Jesus' birth. But on page 49 of the book, uh, you say that while the Greek version of Isaiah 
uh, predicts that a virgin will conceive sometime in the future. The Masoretic text uh, says that a young woman of marriageable age, uh, not a virgin, has already conceived. And then this, you say, means that Isaiah was not speaking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was born approximately 800 years later. So help me understand uh, what, what in the world is going on here um, in the midst of everything that I've been taught, you know, kind of growing up. And uh, how does this information maybe better inform our understanding of the Christmas story and of the birth of Christ? Yeah, I know this is scandalous, right? I'm right. doing Christmas for everybody. <laughs> you're, you're in the right place to bring some scandalous material, so you're all good. <laughs> so, no, this is a great question. So, um, I want to start by backing up from Isaiah for a minute. Okay. To kind of uh, set the foundation for my answer. Many people who object to the way I look at this passage, or some of the other passages I discuss in the book, um, will often say, you know, I read scripture literally, yep. and I believe that that's how God communicates, and, uh, you know, we don't need any of these fancy questions or, you know, uh, uh, fancy methods for looking at the Bible. Hmm. And so I say, okay, that's fair. Um, first of all, we need to understand, though, that what we mean by reading the Bible literally really means reading the Bible contextually. You know, taking the words in context. And, um, you know, it's, it's not, uh, you know, unheard of for people to, you know, look at a verse in light of the, the context around it. You know, so to look at, in this case, Isaiah 7.14, in light of what's written in Isaiah 7. Now, when it comes to uh, the reading of Isaiah at Christmas time, very few people read the whole chapter. Right. That's true. And when you, when you read the chapter, you find that this verse, Isaiah 7, 14, this uh, prophecy about Emmanuel is written to someone very specific at a very specific location, hmm. uh, in a very specific location at a very specific time in history. And so for those who uh, are listening to this and wish to pause the recording, they can open up their Bibles to Isaiah 7, and what they will see in the first few verses is an introduction by the narrator of the passage, whether that's Isaiah or somebody else, it doesn't matter. And what we find is that this passage um, is describing a situation that developed in Jerusalem around the year 732, 733 B.C., and it was a, a war called the Syro-Ephraimite War, or the Syro-Ephraimite Conflict. Hmm. And what that means in simple terms is that the king of Syria, or as the Bible sometimes calls it, Aram, A-R-A-M, the king of Syria and the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, which is referred to as Ephraim in this case, came to do battle against the southern kingdom of Israel, which is known as Judah. Hmm. And the king of Judah at that time was Ahaz. And the text tells us that. Now, Ahaz was concerned that um, the, the king of Syria and the king of Ephraim, or Israel, were going to remove him from the throne and put a puppet king in his place. And there was a very good reason why they wanted to do that. And we know this from historical documents, both within the Bible and outside of the Bible. And that is that the Assyrians from Mesopotamia, from you know, what is today essentially Iraq, were a quickly growing empire, and they were getting ready to do battle in the area of Syria and Israel and Judah and Egypt. And so these kings, the king of Syria and the king of Israel, Ephraim, needed all the help they could get. And because Judah, whose capital city was Jerusalem, um, was kind of out of the way, King Ahaz thought he could avoid the whole skirmish and uh, just kind of stay off of Syria's radar screen. Um, but when these kings came to remove him, he had a choice to make. Either he joins them and runs the risk of being toppled by Assyria, or he appeals to Assyria for help against them. Hmm. Now, it's at this time when Ahaz is deliberating over this that Isaiah the prophet comes to him and says, there's a third option. 
And the third option is not to trust, not to align yourself, uh, align yourself with these kings, not to align yourself with uh, Assyria, but to trust God. Hmm. It's a passage about faith hmm. in the midst of a storm. Um, and so Ahaz, we find out in the passage, doesn't have that kind of faith. And when Ahaz offers a sign from God to him to prove him, prove to him that God is on his side, if only he will believe, Ahaz says, I will not put God to the test. Basically, uh, in, to translate that into simple terms, I'm going to do what's most sensible to me. Hmm. And that is, I'm going to appeal to the king of Assyria for help. And so it's at that time, at that juncture in the passage, where Isaiah says to him, fine, but God's going to give you a sign anyway. And he says, here's the sign. You see that young woman over there? She's pregnant. Well, she's going to give birth to a son, and his name is going to be Emmanuel, which means God is with us, or in simple terms, God is on our side. Hmm. And so that child, when he is born and he's called Emmanuel, that is going to be a continual sign, a symbol of a bigger reality to Ahaz that he missed the boat, that God is on the side of his people if only they would have faith. Hmm. Now, the passage goes on, and people often miss this as well. It says uh, in a subsequent verse, within 65 years, within 65 years, the two kings before whom you stand in dread will be no more. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that this child, Emmanuel, has to come on the scene before those 65 years are up. Hmm. And so it can't possibly, cannot possibly be talking about Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that begs the question, what on earth is Matthew doing when he quotes this verse and applies it to Jesus? Hmm. And it's a good question. Um, the problem is that when Matthew says that the, the virgin birth, uh, with regard to you know, Mary and Jesus here, right. um, was a fulfillment of the scriptures, we misunderstand what he's talking about when he uses the word fulfill. The average Christian will take that to mean that a prophet from long ago made a prediction about Jesus, and now it finally came true. That's, that's, what what I've, I've, that's what I've always been taught. Yep. <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah. That's common understanding. Yep. The only problem is that's clearly not what Matthew is talking about. Huh. Matthew understands this. And how do we know that? Well, all we have to do is look at Hosea 11.1. 1. This is another verse that Matthew, uh, that Matthew quotes. It says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Now, Matthew uses that verse to talk, uh, you know, later, uh, Matthew on there, to talk about uh, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' trip to Egypt to flee Herod. Hmm. And so, you know, he says, this took place to fulfill what Hosea said, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The only problem is when you turn to Hosea 11, it is so clear that Israel in this passage means the nation of Israel who was called out of Egypt during the time of the Exodus. And so when we look at Matthew's use of Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew's use of Hosea 11.1, 1, what we find is this. Matthew sees in the scripture events that took place in Israel's past that had their own meaning centuries ago. But now that Jesus has come on the scene and he has lived and he has, uh, uh, you know, been uh, crucified and now resurrected. And Matthew is there writing his gospel. He looks back to the Old Testament scriptures and says, you know, what happened in Jesus's life in his ministry, both the, the fleeing to Egypt and coming out again, the virgin birth and a number of other things, these are fulfillments of the scripture. But he doesn't mean that scripture predicted them. What he means is that they are just like those events in the Old Testament, except now they've been, uh, God has, um, you know, re, uh, almost, uh, uh, um, he's, uh, what's a good way to put it? He, he's done the same thing again, yet in a much bigger way, hmm. in a much more significant way in the person of Jesus. 
And this, interestingly, is how Jews in the first century in Jesus's time read scripture. Mm. They were rarely interested in the original meaning of scripture. What they were more interested in is reading scripture in light of their present reality, which I should mention is what most Christians do today. Mm. And so what I'm saying, even though it may sound like it's scandalous or heretical, it's not at all. And it's the same type of interpretation that takes place every Sunday in evangelical Christian churches from the pulpit. Hmm. So I guess it's, it's almost like Matthew wasn't looking back on that verse in order to say, hey, look, Isaiah predicted this all these years ago, and here we are, but rather was saying, just as Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 was a sign that God was with, is with us. So the birth of Christ, even more so, is a sign that God is still with us. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's absolutely right. And it, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a, a similar sign, but it, now it represents something even bigger. Um, another great example of this in the Old Testament, in fact, comes from Exodus 3. Mm-hmm. Because when, in Exodus 3, when God calls Moses uh, to go down to Egypt, and Moses is uh, you know, politely refusing, God says, all right, I'm going to give you a sign. You see that burning bush over there? That's going to be a sign to you. Hmm. Because when you come out of Egypt, you're going to see not a burning bush, but now a burning mountain. Hmm. And it's interesting in the Hebrew that the word for the the bush is sne, which sounds and looks very similar to the word Sinai for Sinai. And so before Moses goes to Egypt, God gives him a little burning bush. It is not consumed. When he comes out of Egypt, he gives, them, he gives Moses a burning mountain. Hmm. And that is a sign, a, a verification that God was with him the whole time in all of that. Wow. And that God can be taken at his word. You see, this is why I wanted to take that online class with you. <laughs> this is such good stuff. This is so good. Um, so talk to me about the story of creation in, in Genesis. I have a lot of friends Um, And I was one of these people as well uh, in the past who will like die on the hill of arguing that this is a literal story that is meant to condemn like evolution. But in your book, uh, you remind us that the creation account of Genesis is really an ancient Near Eastern creation account that exists among other Near Eastern uh, creation accounts, such as the Babylonian uh, Epic of Creation, I believe it's called. Um, So in other words, and again, correct me if I'm misunderstanding, But the ancient Near Eastern context that the creation story was written in uh, can tell us a lot about the intended meaning of the story. So uh, talk to us about that, like if you could. Uh, How does this information about context maybe give us a different reading of Genesis than that typical argument against evolution? And what exactly is going on um, in those first few chapters of Genesis? Sure, absolutely. Yeah, so the the first thing is with regard to evolution, um, that's a, a great Uh, scientific and also theological discussion. But, you know, what I tell my students when I talk about Genesis 1 is that I am not a scientist. Hmm. My my training is not in the physical sciences. And therefore, I would consider it irresponsible if I were to make authoritative claims about matters pertaining to science. Hmm. And so I leave that to the scientists. Um, But what I can talk about authoritatively are ancient biblical texts. And what I find when I look at Genesis 1, and this is by no means original, um, I'm drawing from, uh, you know, some very good scholarship uh, that has uh, uh, been written over the last, uh, particularly in the last few decades, there's been some great works that have come out. Um, But since the, the late 19th century, we've known of uh, a work called Enuma Elish, and this is the uh, commonly known as the Babylonian creation epic. Um, this was a story about creation which has tons of similarities to Genesis 1, um, and we have to ask ourselves if there are so many similarities between Genesis 1 and Enuma Elish, when would that have happened? When would uh, one of those traditions been able to borrow from the other? And I believe that the only time period where that could have happened was in the 6th century BC. 
the sixth century BC. And why is that? Well, that's because the Israelites were living in Babylon. And every new year, at least, they would hear Enuma Elish read. And they would hear the Babylonian story of creation, which confessed that Marduk, Marduk, the king of, uh, or, or the god of Babylon, um, was the king of the gods hmm. and the lord of creation. Now, we know from the Bible, from the book of Ezekiel in particular, um, that the Israelites and the Judeans who went off to Babylon uh, faced a bit of a, a quandary here. You know, are we to follow the gods of Babylon, the religion of Babylon, or are we to stay faithful to our God, even though we're outside of his land, where his temple was? Mm. And how are we to worship him if our temple doesn't exist? Because remember what Deuteronomy says, there was only one place where you're to worship the Lord your God, and that has been burned down. The temple is no more in Jerusalem. And so the writers of Genesis 1, I believe, took either Enuma Elish and, and perhaps other traditions, other creation traditions, and they used it um, in order to, uh, as they used that genre in order to communicate with their fellow Jews, if we want to call them that, um, that you can still remain faithful to your God outside of his land and that he is, despite the fact that his city was destroyed and his temple was destroyed, that he is still Lord of the earth and Lord of creation. Hmm. And so what they do is they take uh, elements from Enuma Elish and they interweave them with priestly concerns, particularly the concern about Sabbath. And what you get is a creation story that looks like Enuma Elish in many ways, but this time it's the God of Israel who is the only God. He stands unopposed in the heavens. He is Lord over creation and always will be. And furthermore, at the beginning of time, he himself observed the Sabbath. And if that was good enough for God at the beginning of time, it should be a good enough way for the Israelites or the forefathers of the Jews to worship their God in Babylon. Hmm. In other words, Genesis 1 is not teaching about how material stuff came to be. What it's doing is using creation story, a creation story as a backdrop to make a theological point that the followers of Yahweh, the God of Israel, can still worship him outside of the land of Israel in Babylon, and they do that by keeping Sabbath. Hmm. And that is a very different way of reading Genesis 1, but I would argue that when you look at the vocabulary of Genesis 1, that you read it in the broader context of the Torah and consider that Genesis, uh, like all biblical texts, are written not as science texts, but as religious texts, this actually makes far more sense than the standard view that Genesis 1 is a historical text that argues for a young earth. Hmm. It's almost like these people living in, in Babylon were writing this, almost like this radical or like this subversive message or story about what they believe about Yahweh. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yep. Mm. That's awesome. I, and I imagine that probably would have rocked the boat a little bit in where they um, were. Yes and no. It's, I don't know that it would have rocked the boat in the way it <laughs> rocks our boat today. <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> but it, the, the real question for them, I think, at that time, um, and for many other nations who were defe defeated in battle, hmm. um, they believed that when they went out to battle that their God went with them, and that yep. if they were defeated in battle, their God was defeated. Hmm. Okay? Um, and so when the Israelites or the Judeans were defeated in battle by the Babylonians, um, many of them would have believed essentially that their God was dead hmm. or dead to them anyway, and that it would have been natural for them to start worshiping other gods. And we know that that's what they did all throughout their history. Anyway, the Bible hmm. tells us that because you know, God is constantly 
rebuking them through the prophets for worshiping, you know, these other gods and idols and so on. And so um, what Genesis 1, I think, is doing is telling them that even though we have been defeated in battle, our God has not been defeated. Mm. He is still Lord over all, even though we are in a different land. That'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> That'll preach. That's awesome. Um, so last question for you, and then uh, we'll wrap it up. But in light of all of this stuff uh, that we've been talking about with all these different texts and the, the background of the Bible and the culture and the context, talk to us real quick about how does the average reader who's never been to Bible college, never been to seminary, doesn't have the first inkling about Hebrew or uh, Masoretic text or any of that kind of stuff, like when they pick up their Bible tomorrow morning to look at it and um, you know, kind of set the course for their day, perhaps, you know, what, what does, how does somebody do that in light of all of this stuff? Like, what is the, what is the, the point of the Bible for the average reader? Yeah, well, it's important, I think, first of all, and I referred to this before a little bit, that we get our priorities straight. Yeah. Um, my opinion is that too many Christians major in the minors, mm -hmm. uh, theologically speaking. And very few people ask, uh, you know, really ask seriously and inquire of the biblical text, what is really the most important thing in scripture? What is the most important teaching? And I would argue that based on what 1 Corinthians 15, 3 says, that it is the resurrection of Jesus. Hmm. And if Jesus is risen, Paul goes on to say in Romans, um, then that has implications for how we live our lives. Hmm. It has implications for how we live our lives. Um, that we are to be agents of transformation for Jesus. We're to, in many ways, carry on the mission that he originally gave to his disciples that we read about in the Gospels. Um, we are not called to be expert historians. Some people make a career out of that, like I do. But that's not what being a Christian is all about, becoming an expert historian. Um, you know, but even for those of us who are historians and we try to answer all the questions that are, are posed to us, there's still some things, if we're honest, that we, we just can't answer. And there's always going to be that element of mystery um, and that element of the unknown when we come to the text of the Bible. But just because I don't know something about a historical matter doesn't mean I'm an ineffective Christian. Mm. You know, I can still live for Jesus in light of the resurrection as an agent of transformation, even though my knowledge is incomplete. Mm. And when we can recognize that uh, no matter who one is and how much training they've had, their knowledge is always going to be incomplete, that frees us up in a way mm. to focus on what really matters, and that is living in light of the resurrection. It's beautiful. Dr. Dose, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation, and you're going to have to come back again soon. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Glenn. Yeah, thank you. You have a great rest of your day, and I look forward to talking to you next time. All right. Sounds good. Take All care. Right, thank you. Bye-bye. Man, that was some pretty good stuff, right? Uh, I learned a lot. I don't know about you, but I learned a lot. The part about the part about uh, that passage in Isaiah uh, that we usually use to refer to Jesus uh, totally blew my mind, and it just shows me uh, really the the beauty and I think the importance of this of this show of the What If Project podcast because from the very beginning we set out to explore the question of what if there are ways of understanding and thinking about the Bible and passages and stories in the Bible that are different than the ways in which our traditions have handed us. And the stuff that he shared about that passage in Isaiah uh, and about the Virgin Mary, that is much different than what my tradition has handed me. But it's another way to understand things, and I think, I think it's a beautiful way to think about it. So I hope that this uh, encouraged you, uh, challenged you in your own reading of the Bible, uh, really, really good stuff. Uh, real quick, if if you find yourself where you're in a place where you are trying to navigate through all of these things, uh, you are maybe in a place of deconstruction, reconstruction, rethinking your faith, uh, whatever you want to call it, 
uh, please head over to Facebook. Look up the What If Project community. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. This is a closed Facebook group uh, where people are able to go and share where they are in their journey, ask their questions, share their doubts, express their frustrations if they want to. Uh, But everybody's in a different place on their journey, and everybody is there to cheer and root each other on. So if that's something that you need in your life, if you're looking for some kind of community uh, as you walk through this period of wilderness in your life, uh, this is a place for you. There are conversations going on there daily that I learn from and I just love to be part of, and uh, it's just such a good time. So head over there, uh, What If Project Community. Also, if you could do me a favor, this is the last thing, uh, go to iTunes, and uh, if this show has encouraged you, uh, please give it a rating. Uh, If you hate it, don't give it a rating. I'm just kidding. You can do that if you want to, Uh, but please go give it a rating, because the more ratings it has, right now we have like 39, uh, the easier it is for people to find it um, when they search for it on the podcast app um, on their phone. And I guess something with the algorithms, the more ratings there are, the more things that people say about it, the easier it is for it to show up in people's feed when they search for something like God, Christianity, spirituality, uh, whatever. So if you can go over there to iTunes, uh, the podcast app, give this thing a rating, leave a comment if you want to, uh, that would be incredibly helpful for me. So all of that to say... Thank you for dropping by. It's been awesome to have you here. And I will see you next week for episode number seven, part number seven of the series. Uh, Have a great week and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.